Activist Radio is on the air. You've tuned into the Mark Harrington Show. Sponsored by Created Equal. Time is running out for our nation. I beg of you. You need to stand against the evil that's plaguing our nation. If you don't like abortion, don't have one. The only thing that can be said to be objective truth is that there is no objective truth. Like you kill a baby fetus, the same thing as killing any old inanimate object. I would argue that we certainly are not all created equal. Mark is training a new generation of leaders. people it's your movement now it's not your parents anymore the blood that is shed cries out to god from the ground for justice and now here's mark what i want to do tonight is try to give you a vision for anti-abortion advocacy in times of exile because we're heading towards some desperate times, folks. I, you can look at this with rose-colored glasses if you wish, but you're gonna be living in delight, denial about what's going on in culture right now. We are the enemies of the baby killers, those who wanna kill children, and have been at this for over 50, almost 50 years, are not going to give up ground without a fight. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. And maybe you don't need to hear probably what I'm about to say, but this is how bad it is. People say, oh, you know, I lived through the Clinton years. I did that. I lived through the Obama years. I did that too. Seth did as well. But I tell you what, what we're facing now isn't anything like those two. They, they, there is a frontal assault on conservative Christians, pro-lifers from large, larger culture, the culture at large, and the administration in Washington and elsewhere. And we need to come to grips with that. And understand what we're up against all right so listen to this 48 years since Roe versus Wade 48 years uh, that's a lot of years like I said I thought I'd take five those years passed quickly but in 48 years after 48 years we have the most pro-abortion president in history he signed almost 50 executive orders in the first couple of weeks some of those reversed some of the pro-life policies of President Trump. He has made it clear that his administration would work along with the Congress to pack the court. Does anybody know what that means? You know what packing the court is? Packing the court is basically saying, since we have the Congress, we're going to add to the number of the U.S. Supreme Court so we have a permanent majority of Democrats, pro-abortion advocates on the U.S. Supreme Court. Right now there's nine they want to go to 13. Who knows if it would stop there? They have the numbers to do it. I don't know if they will, but that's an expressed uh, goal that they have. Uh, they want to codify Roe v. Wade. I've talked about that earlier. Bill Clinton tried that. What that means is taking this U.S. Supreme Court decision and making it federal law. That has never been achieved. But the Biden administration wants to get that done. Uh, and then we look at the election itself. Now, I don't know about you, you know, I was a supporter of President Trump, and I think a lot of you were as well. But it was bigger than him. It was bigger than him. And no matter how you cut it, we got to look at what happened on that day and beyond after the election and what happened in the aftermath of that as a real loss. 
And I don't want to be depressing here, but we got to feel that. We got to own that and say, yeah, we lost. We lost on election day and beyond. But that should motivate us not make us go into our caves or hide out or hunker down. But we got to own that and not just, you know, the day after go back at it the same way we always have. We've got to take time and take inventory of where we are as a movement, where we are as an organization, and decide what is it, if anything, we need to be doing differently. Because, you know, the, uh, the, the definition of insanity is what? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I can tell you this, if the pro-life movement keeps doing what it's been doing for 48 years, we're going to get the same result. There's got to be some changes made. Got to be some changes made. Now, I'm only responsible for my own organization, and we've been dedicated to changing hearts and minds, and we'll continue because we believe that politics is downstream from culture. You got to change culture first before you change politics. Now, it works opposite as well. Politics can also change culture in that bills, laws teach. Laws teach. So that those are both true. But you're not going to change the political landscape or public, opinion, or public policy without changing public opinion. And that's what we're about, right? One heart at a time, one mind at a time, one baby at a time. It's the only way it's going to get done. There are no cheap solutions here. There aren't, just telling you. So after 48 years, that's where we are politically. Um, now, this is a staggering number. We, we, you know, we talk about the number of dead. And I, it, it's hard to even get your mind around this. 62 million. 62 million unborn have been killed since 1973. I mean, you can't even fathom that. that I mean, that's a number that's beyond really quantifying. I mean, it's like, what is what is that? 62 million. That's crazy, right? I've lost track when people say, oh, how many? I, I was like, I don't know, 60, 70, 80. I mean, what is it? We're going to be at 100 million some year? I don't know. But I can tell you this, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. But the thing is, where'd they go? Where are they? What happened to them? They just disappear? 62 million dead, and they're nowhere. There's no grave sites for them. There's not a grave site. They don't get a death certificate. There's no visitation for their funerals, right? None of that. There's no funeral. And except for a few of them, there's no burial. Except for people like Monica Miller, Dr. Miller, who retrieved babies from dumpsters and elsewhere to provide them a humane funeral and burial. They don't even get that. There's no grave, except in some places. You guys went to uh, Chattanooga where you had to memorial the unborn, but the unborn babies aren't actually there. They're just, you know, it's a marker for them. There's no place, no gravestones, no nothing. They got nothing. 62 million. It's like they just disappeared. And that's why I love what Monica Miller said 
about this, the real plight of the unborn. And I, I want to share this with you. And I've, some of you guys have heard me say this before, or if you've read her book, you'll know uh, about this. But she talks about the plight of the unborn, the plight of the unborn. And she said it's the real plight. I mean, we think about their plight, and their plight is that they're being dismembered and decapitated and disemboweled, right? That is their plight. They're being murdered. They're being killed. It's a genocide. But she says the real plight of the unborn is not just about the killing of the unborn, as bad as that is. She says the real plight, now I want you to get this. This is the real plight of the unborn. The real plight is a terrible, radical, humble loneliness. Loneliness. She says the unborn are cast out of the human family, severed from human relationships to a place farthest out from human communion, to the outermost parts of the earth, she said, a place she called the edge of the world, the edge of the world. I want you to, to let that one sink in, okay? It's not, I mean, the dismemberment and the killing is as bad as it is, but it's the loneliness, the abandonment of the unborn that in some ways is a worse plight. The edge of the world, she talked about being at the edge of the world when she retrieved babies from a, uh, a, a loading dock and she felt like she was in that place between the here and the hereafter. And that's where the unborn were, the forgotten unborn, the unborn, the abandoned unborn. So I mentioned that today when you're standing in front of an abortion mill, that you should be standing in solidarity with the ones that are being killed inside, as if you were standing with them, very and in, 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 in participating in their suffering at some level, right? We should be willing to take upon us the persecution that they are receiving. That's part of bearing one another's burdens as Christians, right? We should be willing to share in that at some level. Of course, we never will completely because we're not being dismembered. We're not being abandoned. But we can uh, stand with them as they are persecuted, so we should be willing to as well. You guys get that? Amen. All right, so um, when I say that there's, and, and again, I don't want to be like, oh man, this is too much. It's heavy, Mark. You're being, it, 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 this is negative, negative. No. It's real right now, and you can disagree with me. We top, there is no real political solution right now. Now, I'm not faulting people that fight the political battle. We do it when we need to on a case per case basis. But there really is no, at least at the federal level, there's no doubt. Maybe some hope at the state level. I think, if anything, it's at the local level, and I'll be talking about that. But that doesn't mean that we abandon the political area. We don't. Because we need to be speaking for the unborn wherever they're being attacked. Right? And if it's in the political realm, we got to be there. If it's in front of an abortion center, we got to be there. If it's out in a college campus, got to be there, or a high school there, or on a street corner, or on an overpass, or wherever it is, 
wherever they're being attacked, we have to be with them. And I mean, politics, the whole point of politics really, or our law is to restrain evil. It will never zero it out. It's meant to put fences around it and keep it in check, so to speak. Even if you ban or abolish something, people still do it. You bring justice to them, but you never end it entirely. So government was instituted among men to build these fences, to restrain evil, never to abolish it because that will never happen until Jesus returns. So we should keep our, you know, our focus where it needs to be. And I don't believe that is in the political area. So that's the bad news and it's bad and it may get worse folks, but here's the good news. The good news, we have hope in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Now that some people say that it might sound cliche. It's not our hopes in the gospel, right? Because the gospel can rejuvenate souls and lives and hearts and minds. It's through the gospel that we have our hope. It's through Christ that we have our hope. It's not in men. It's not in politics. That's not going to get it done. It's got to be in the gospel. And there's a difference between being optimistic and having hope. You might think, well, what's, what's the difference there? Well, I actually think it can be dangerous a little bit to be optimistic. Optimistic is kind of a man-made thing. It's, you know, the power of positive thinking. If you just think the right things, you're positive, you say all the right things, that somehow that's going to come to pass. Well, it doesn't work that way necessarily. Now, we don't want to be Johnny Raincloud or walking around, you know, like we've been sucking on a lemon all the time. But... The truth is optimism can be dangerous because if you're optimistic to a fault, you ask little of people generally because you might have false hope. We don't want false hope, putting our hope in things that are unlikely to happen. And we do it just to try to motivate people. That's not a good idea necessarily. So optimism can be false hope and actually can be dangerous hope on the other hand is different and that's hope in christ and that's where in season or out of season we are willing to share the gospel whether we're changing hearts and minds at the moment or not but we're faithful to the gospel in season and out and out through we just got to look at it and take the long view and that is the kingdom of god is advancing through good and bad times. God is sovereign. So he is working his will even now, as, as desperate as it might look on the pro-life front, he is working his purposes. Now, that's, it's a little hard to take that one in and figure it out. But if you believe in God's sovereignty, he's using these circumstances for good. He's working it in us, and eventually, and truthfully, eventually for the, the unborn, who will receive justice one way or another, right? Either it's going to come through us and through bringing political protections for them, legal protections, or God's going to bring justice through judgment of the nation. One of the two, it's going to happen. We're not going to get away with this for much longer, for much longer. Now, when I mentioned being in exile as Christians, I want to share, we've been reading this book, uh, and, and I don't know if Seth mentioned this the other night. It's a book by the author Rod Dreher, 
and it's called um, Live Not By Lies. And in it, he talks about, uh, he quotes C.S. Lewis, and I want to share this with you, because I think this is who we are. I think C.S. Lewis puts it the best. When he says that Christians are in what he calls enemy-occupied territory. I want you to think about that. If you think about war, enemy-occupied territory, if you are not part of the occupiers, what? You're kind of a you know, dissident trying to just keep alive or whatever. We're that. We're in enemy-occupied territory in our own country. But he goes on to say, Christianity is a story of how the rightful king, we know who that is. Who's that? Huh? Jesus. Who? Jesus. All right. The rightful king is? Jesus. All right. And he has what? The rightful king has landed. Amen? Come on, give it up for that. The rightful king, Jesus, in occupied enemy territory, has landed. Isn't that cool? I want you to visualize that in your mind for a moment. King Jesus, right, has landed in enemy occupied territory. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. Right? He goes on to say this. You might say, landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign. I love this. Of sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> sabotage. That's what we're all about. Right? <laughs> Listen, those who want to kill babies, I'm a saboteur. I hope you are too. Right? The abortionist? <laughs> I'm a saboteur. At the abortion mill? I'm a saboteur. I don't really, I'm about to I want to mess up their plans as bad as possible. And I hope you do too. So he talks about a campaign of sabotage and that the rightful king has landed. And now this is this is some hard medicine. He said the culture war, now this is his opinion. This is where Dreyer, Dreyer picks off uh, up after C.S. Lewis. And he says, the culture war is largely over. Now, this is hard medicine for a guy that's been at it for 30 years. Really hard medicine. But listen, you know, if you're in it to win it, you've got to deal with the facts. He says, it's largely over. And this is hard. He says, and we lost. Now, I look at that and I say, listen, I've dedicated 30 years of my life to this. That's a hard place to come to. Really hard place to come to. But you know what? When I read that, it doesn't mean that it's over, but it's largely over and we've lost. I think that's true. But when I read that and I try to take it in, I say, is he right? Is he right? Is he right? I think he's right. I think he's right. In 30 years of my life, I've dedicated to this, but I've got to admit that it's largely over and we've lost. Now, that can make me think, well, you know, I'm just going to pull back. I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to go into my cave and I'm going to ride it out. That would be the impulse of some. And honestly, I couldn't blame you, honestly, and some people. I mean, that's the easy way out, right? Or it's like, 
That just makes me more dedicated. More dedicated. So he goes on to say, the culture war is largely over. We lost the Grand March. And he's talking about, when he talks about the Grand March, what he means there is the march of the left, the Marxists, the mob left, the abortions, abortion advocates, the Grand March through our institutions. In which, and that's what we've seen for 40 years now. I don't know about you guys, but it's happened, right? Our institutions are almost all controlled by the left, by the God-hating crowd, right? He says the time for being, uh, the Grand March, uh, the Grand March is for the time being a victory parade. That's how they're behaving, right? But then so were the May Day marches and the pageants in all the cities and towns in, so in the Soviet empire. And what happened to the Soviet empire? What happened to it? It collapsed. It collapsed. And I can tell you this, the philosophy of those who kill children, it ain't gonna stand forever. It's gotta collapse eventually. And we have to be there when it does. So that's C.S. Lewis. Now, when I talked about being in exile, uh, in the Bible there's a, an example of real exile. And that was the, the, uh, the Jews who were taken into Babylon. Now this was real exile, folks. This was like you were here and you had to be picked up, taken out of your country and put over here in a foreign land. That's real exile. That's not happening to us. We at least live in our country. We're here. This is America. I'm standing in, on that. They actually were taken from their homes and put into exile. That's real exile. That happened. And in Jeremiah 29, uh, God tells the Jews how to live faithfully. And this is where I'm getting to the end here. And I'm going to leave you with some marching orders. God talks to them and tells them how to live faithfully during these difficult times. And that's what we have to do, okay? How many people think we're in difficult times? And I know you're new. Some of you are new to this. And all you have is the, you know, the framework of the last four, six, eight years or what have you. But we're living in difficult times. And I, just trust me on that. <laughs> we are. Okay? But how are you going to live through those difficult times? And this is what the prophet uh, Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now this is the hope we have. Build houses. Hmm. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives. Doesn't sound like a call to action, does it? Very interesting. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. So what's God saying? Go about your business. Have families, marry, have children, right? In exile, do those things. But then he goes on, and I think this is important for us. While you're out doing all those things, but seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. 
seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of that city. The city in which you dwell in exile, seek its welfare. Now that's kind of a, that's a mind blowing thought, right? Seek the welfare of the city that, in which there's an abortion center that's killing. Yes. Yes, that's what God's saying. And he said, and pray to the Lord, pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So basically what God is saying here in Jeremiah is that wherever you've been planted, wherever you are currently, wherever you live, the community that you're in, bloom there, flourish, take wives, have children, have families, and seek the welfare of that city. Now, what would the welfare of the city look like? To me, the best thing I can do is seek the welfare of the most vulnerable among them. And that's down at the local abortion center. I need to be there. Where else could I seek the welfare? At the local college. I could be there. Seeking the welfare of those people. Where else? I could do it at city council. Right? I could go to the high school. All the things that we're doing, we are seeking the welfare of that city that which we are planted in. Bloom there, God says. Bloom there. Now what's interesting is he didn't say, just hunker down and wait for the rapture. Right? I don't know if you guys believe in the rapture or not, but you know, there's a that there's that thinking out there, you know, if things get only if they get worse, we're gonna get raptured out of here. Well, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's not what God said here. He said, When you're in exile, seek the welfare of the city. He didn't say hung you know, hang out until you're whisked away at the eleventh hour when things get really, really bad and Jesus come back and comes back and pulls us out. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. Seek the welfare of the city. And invest in the situation in which you find yourself in. So, to distill all this down, basically it's this. All politics is local. Everything we do is local. Now, where do we find that? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this. Jesus speaking. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in Jesus, at Pentecost, when the, when the apostles were about ready to go out and spread the gospel, what did Jesus tell them to do? Start in Jerusalem. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where were they? In Jerusalem. In your hometown. That's where you start. And then where? To Judea and Samaria. Those were the outlying areas in Israel. And beyond that, where else? To the uttermost parts of the earth, right? So take care of your own Jerusalem. I don't know where that is for each one of you, but wherever that is, that's where you need to be planted and working. Now, that kind of goes against what I'm going to say now, and that is we want you to come to work for us, but... Uh, <laughs> Then you'll find your home where we are, and you can seek the welfare of that city. Anyway, uh, so that's what that's what we should be doing: is start in our own Jerusalem, bloom where you've been planted, 
And then finally, let me give you this second example of living in exile, thriving and surviving in exile. And that is an example of occupied Europe. And we, many of you know the story of Sophie Scholl. Sophie Scholl, raise your hand if you know the story. Almost everyone here, awesome. If you don't, you need to look her up uh, and read uh, about her. But she was a 19-year-old teenager uh, living in occupied Europe, and along with her, her brother and others were producing pamphlets that were exposing the evil deeds of the Third Reich, including some of them that included information on the, the death camps. And because of that, she lost her head. 19-year-old college student who stood against the Third Reich, and she lost her head by guillotine. Now, whoa. She's got some cred, right? Serious cred. I want to hear what she has to say. Because if I was faced with that same situation, would I go to the guillotine? Would I do it willingly, faithfully? Don't know until I guess I face that if I ever do. But she said this, and this is what's really, really key. And that is it's easy just to ride out the storm live in our comfort zones. We're in America. Hey, you know, eh, it's not all that bad. Uh-uh. This is what she said. The real damage is done by those millions who only want to survive, she said. And there are millions like that in America. And they fill our churches, folks. They fill our churches. They just want to survive. Day in, day out, the routine. The world's on fire. The culture's disintegrating. Babies are getting slaughtered by the millions, and we're just wanting to survive. She goes on to say, The honest men who just want to be left in peace, those who don't want their little lives, she says, disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those people who live small. Small. They live small. They mate small. Don't live small. Don't mate small. Live big. Mate big. <laughs> they live small and they mate small. And then finally she says, they die small. Do you guys want to live small? Huh? No. no. You want to live big? Yes. All right. Those who live small, made small, die small, it's the reductionist approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't come to get you. <laughs> COVID. <laughs> COVID, COVID, COVID. The, <laughs> the boogeyman won't come to get you. But it's all illusion, she says. It's all illusion. You live small, made small, die small, it's all an illusion. It's not real. She says, not real. It's not real. It's all an illusion. But they die too. And here's their point. It's so good. Those people who roll up their spirits into a tiny little ball so as to be safe, she goes, safe from what? 
Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues, she says. And a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. Powerful words, don't you think? Sophie Scholl, 19-year-old teenager, college student, lost her head for the gospel. We should listen to what she said. Don't live small. Don't just survive. Thrive. Live on the edge. What better way is there to live than that? You know you're alive when you're in the fight, in the battle. And that's what I'm calling you guys to tonight. Not just to survive, but to arrive in the time of exile. So in that time, there's three basic things we can be doing. Share the truth, which is what you're doing this week. Save the innocent. Rescue those being led away to death, which is what we're doing this week. And then form groups, communities, networks, support structures, right? Within your own community, wherever you're planted, in order to seek the welfare of that city. Find synergy with like-minded people, kindred spirits. And that's what you're going to need to do after you leave. And we want to help you do that. We want to help you do that. So let me finish by saying this. We're on our fourth day here. Actually, six if you left on, you left on Saturday. You guys have been together for six days. Your mind's starting to move. You're thinking, I need to do more. Right? I need to do more. But what do I do? Well, Bible's clear. Seek the welfare of your city first. Where are you planted? Be faithful to that. Beyond that, is this something you could see God moving you in the direction of actually doing this for a lifetime? We're here to assist you in that path, in that, in that journey. We're looking forward to a new group of interns this summer. We hope several of you choose to come with us and be with us for two months this summer. I guarantee you, if you commit to come, you'll be changed forever. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Mark Harrington, your radio activist. For more information on how to make a difference for the cause of life, liberty, and justice, go to createdequal.org. To follow Mark, go to markharringtonshow.com. Be sure to tune in next time for your marching orders in the culture war.